0: Welcome to the 10th episode, we've made it to 10 episodes of the Notes from Michael White podcast. I'm Peter Kieran and alongside me is Josh Wagman and we're going to bring to you some of the uh, tasty tidbits from Michael White's newsletter from this week. Uh, It is March 29th, uh, well it's actually March 30th today. Uh, The newsletter was uh, come out on Saturday the 27th, so we'll recap what happened there and add in some of our own stuff. Uh, Josh, uh, anything that you want to uh, talk about right off of the hop?
1: Well, obviously uh, very excited that we've hit double digits and um, I know we're starting to get a few listening listens in from, from here and there, so that's exciting and we're hoping to continue to grow it. Um, wanted to start off by uh, saying hi to Michael, uh, even though he can't be here today. And it was uh, nice to hear that he's got his new lab on order and uh, getting close to be able to uh, start doing a little hands-on stuff again. So uh, knock on wood, he'll feel well enough to kind of get that going and underway. So another milestone has
0: been reached, by the way, Josh. Uh, I just logged into our Anchor FM uh, podcast site, and we have 100 plays all time. So, you know, that's another big milestone. So it's our 10th episode and our 100th play, all in the same episode, so. Thank you to all of our listeners for uh, putting up with Josh and myself and hopefully we're bringing some uh, good uh, content to you guys.
1: Yeah. I mean, you got to start somewhere and uh, it's a a crawl, walk, run uh, kind of uh, mentality. So uh, for us, uh, I'm enjoying it and I'm looking to continue to uh, to help out with this and and co-host with you. and, And hopefully we, we get some more listeners soon. Well, you know,
0: it's I was uh, building an audience, that was a uh, challenge, and I think we're uh, starting to get some organic growth, which is nice. Uh, even last week I noticed we uh, we reached uh, 15 plays for the last episode, so you know, we're trending upwards in in our episode count and it looks like people are actually going back and listening to some of the old ones as well. So, excellent. Um, last week we were uh, I think we were about uh, 15 plays on our first episode and we're already up to 23. So, it's uh, trending upward which is good. So we're, we're looking, uh, looking good. And thanks to our, our listeners in the United States, Canada, uh, there's a, a couple of, of listeners from Australia. There's one from Turkey and, uh, one from the Netherlands. Uh, I'd be interested to find out who's listened to us from the Netherlands. So that's exciting, but, uh, really, we, uh, we thank all our listeners for, uh, bearing with us. And as we lo- learn and grow the podcast and we're happy to bring the content to
1: you. Absolutely. And so, um, first thing I wanted to touch on today is something that you and I have been talking about a little bit, um, kind of more from an ecosystem than necessarily supportability standpoint, and that's Apple. Um, obviously, we have talked at length about the upcoming Apple hardware releases, and, and one of the things over the years that's held me back from kind of going headfirst into the entire Apple ecosystem especially from a desktop standpoint and and basically branching out, but beyond my iDevices like uh, my, my iPhone and my iPad has been supportability and the necessity to go to Apple uh, themselves to get things repaired, which often meant exchanged at an exorbitant fee. Um, what we're starting to see now is a program that started up last year uh, which is uh, basically allowing independent businesses to get back into uh, repairing iPhones and, and different Apple components. So this is something that went away for a number of years, but I think the growing dissent among Apple users for um, kind of inflated repair costs and requiring kind of the the Apple store appointment and, and stuff like that, having an independent repair uh, provider program, I think is huge. And it's now been announced that they're expanding that to Europe and Canada. So you no longer have to go to an Apple store, uh, set up a genius appointment or something like that. The people like, uh, I know there was a couple of specialty shops in Calgary years ago that were repairing Apple devices. that basically went out of business because of the lack of access, now can get recertified and have access to actual Apple components, real um, authentic Apple components to be able to do these repairs. I think this is massive, especially with the new technology coming out, not just having this Intel knowledge previously, but having access to all of these crazy new parts um, and I think that's going to push Apple's new, uh, processing line even that much further.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, that's an interesting point. I think a lot of this gets driven by the, um, the right to repair movement that's really prevalent in europe but also has a number of states in the united states that have really pushed this and i'm glad that we're getting it in canada uh you know and i'll give a shout out to ty the iphone guy here in calgary because he's uh, repaired a number of my daughter's uh, phones for me back in the iphone five and six days so uh you know it's nice that uh for for two reasons i actually really like this is it was relatively unregulated before and it was really hard for these vendors to get genuine Apple parts. So you got mm, what I would call nefarious OEM parts that may or may not have the same um, QA or the same um, specifications that you might've got on your original Apple phone. So it's nice that we're gonna get original Apple parts at, uh, at probably a more convenient time location and budget uh, friendly uh, options. So, you know, and I have nothing against the Apple store or, or re- getting repairs done at, at, uh, at the Apple store or, or straight through Apple, but yeah, you're absolutely right. They can get pricey in a hurry if you're outside of your Apple care, so.
1: And the, the part that I'm excited about is, typically when you're dealing with an Apple store, they've got very knowledgeable people, but they've got limited access to what they can do and what they can't do as far as repairs go. Uh, a lot of times when you use these specialty repair shops, as long as they're Apple certified, of course, Mm -hmm. they have access to do things that potentially Apple stores wouldn't take on. And that's kind of board level stuff. um, Especially when you're talking about logic boards and different things like that. So it is nice to have that person that may have more in-depth electrical engineering knowledge than someone that's um, kind of a a trained for um, uh, like a service desk type scenario, which is a very important role, but maybe lacks depth in some of the deeper technical areas. So uh, very exciting to have access to that type of,
0: of work again. Yeah, way back uh, in a galaxy far, far away, <laughs> I used to be an Apple authorized repair uh, person. So I've, I've done repairs on Macs and, uh, and, and PowerBooks from long, long ago. I think uh, you know I was repairing original Mac, Mac and Mac Pluses as well as you know old Apple Twos and into the you know Mac Two LC days. So <laughs> seems so long ago. Forgot all <laughs> about the battery replacement when your motherboard died in your LC and it was because the CMOS battery died. <laughs> CMOS I, I, nine, I, I remember I remember <laughs> several times where people would bring their Mac LCs in that. that just needed the battery replaced and I told them it would be 15 bucks and it'll take me 10 minutes and they've gone, well, this other shop was going to charge me $700 for a logic board replacement. And, you know, here's a tip, the logic board didn't include the CMOS battery. So they'd swap out that battery across to the new logic board and it would still not work and (laughs) you'd be, you'd be no uh, further ahead. So it uh, it was, that was a, that was an interesting repair. Luckily, it got documented much better after, you know, several thousand of those batteries died, I must say. So.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So next on the on the list today is you can tell it must be the end of, of Q1 because we're starting to see a lot of best ofs come out, uh, especially on tech blogs and uh, tech radar specifically. Usually at the end of Q1s, you'll see it what's best of 2020 or 2021 as far as technology goes and saw a good article that kind of in your sweet spot more than mine, but best full frame camera of 2020. And so I'd be interested to hear what your opinion on something like this is and who do you think this this market is for um, and kind of get your opinion on on where the digital photography market is right now. Well, I'll, uh,
0: we chat about this before the show, and I'll, I'll, I'll reiterate it, and I've, I've said it on another podcast, the uh, Tech Breakfast podcast, is the best camera that you have is the one that, that you have with you. So, obviously, full-frame cameras are going to be leaps and bounds ahead of image quality uh, for several reasons than your average you know, cell phone, but I've been really impressed with my iPhone 12 quality, however... Uh, for what I take pictures of and I'm a I'm a landscape and a, a astrophotographer so for me the iPhone doesn't fit the the needs of a, a lot of things and in fact um, I have a uh, I have a full frame DSLR and then I have a mirrorless um, what, what you would call a APS-C or a micro four-thirds camera so I've got a Nikon D or Z50 and a Nikon D800 and my D800 has 36 megapixels it's got you know, 13 stops of dynamic range. I can shoot in that thing all night, every night, in any weather condition, and I know it's going to be fine and dandy. I could never say the same for my uh, for for my uh, my cell phone. <laughs> a uh, the night capabilities are, are much improved in in the latest one. But if you want to take aurora fo- photos or Milky Way photos, you're not going to get anywhere near the quality out of out of an iPhone that you will out of a full frame DSLR. And the reason being is. Sensor size. Sensor size is king when you're looking at, uh, you know, quality reproductions and, and dynamic range of light and those sorts of things. Because the larger the sensor, the bigger the pixels, the more light it can absorb, and and you know, the the physics of it all is you know, bigger is better in, in terms of a full frame option. So, what would be the best full frame camera? You know, I'm going to say it depends on you know where you're at in your photography journey. I've been a Nikon shooter for probably 15 years, so I have a range of Nikon lenses and, and in fact, my lens fleet probably costs more than two bodies of full frame cameras. So if I was to switch brands and go to Sony or to Canon, because maybe they have a better sensor or a better uh, overall look and feel, I have to weigh the lens calculation into my purchase so you know i I would stick with nikon unless there was such a big leap you know to a sony which would be my second choice at this point in time uh their mirrorless cameras are are probably the best on the market at this point in time nikon and uh and canon aren't far behind but uh sony used to be well ahead in the mirrorless game and a lot of Uh, Canon and Nikon shooters, you know, uh, have uh, Trey Ratcliffe is one of them that I know that that switched uh, to Sony. And he switched from, I believe, from Nikon to Sony. And a lot of it is, you know, the mirrorless cameras are smaller and lighter. And I see that even when I'm uh, driving to, uh, you know, I've got a trailer out in the mountains, and as I drive along, I see lots of wildlife. So I got a small, lightweight uh, camera that I can just throw in my car and have it there, so that as I drive along and I see a bear or a moose or an elk, I can just stop and take a picture. So small and lightweight is a lot better than, you know, my my 150 to 600 zoom lens with a, you know, a three pound camera attached to it. And all of a sudden, you know, it takes me five minutes to get my camera and get myself set up where if I just have it handy, it's really quick. And again, can I take that same picture that I took, you know, on my cell phone? Yep. But guess what? I can't zoom in anywhere near as much as I can with a, with a, with a bigger camera with interchangeable lenses and not being said that you can't add on some of those things to your existing you know, iPhone or whatnot, but you're now dealing with dongles and X and Y and Z. And it becomes a little bit of a, a pain in the rear if that's what you want to do. It's not saying that people don't do it. They can, and it works well, but, you know, from a full frame perspective, um, you know, I think that's a dwindling market. And, you know, that... Um, it's a dwindling market, but it's also a market that's actually gotten cheaper. The entry level for a full frame camera used to be, you know, 5,000 or 6,000 bucks. It's now 2,000. So a lot more people can get into that as well. So the market's grown, even though probably the market for it has shrunk, just because you included a lot of photographers who maybe had a, you know, a cheaper entry level DSLR and they wanted to move up and all of a sudden they can now afford a full frame, uh, full frame camera. So again, Full-frame cameras aren't for everybody, um, but for, if you need to have that low-light, uh, if you want to have extreme uh, portrait lenses, uh, if you want to have the capability to sync with multiple flashes, all of those sorts of things are where you know you have that uh, capability. With, you know, in a you know, I'm going to put a, a prosumer tag on some of these uh, cameras, right? I'm by no means a professional photographer, but all my gear is probably very similar to what a professional might carry. And, you know, it, commensurately it's, it's probably expensive because it's fully weather sealed in X and Y and Z. I've shot in snowstorms. I've shot in rain. <laughs> I've shot overnight in cold locations. And, you know, my cameras have come through me without any issues outside of maybe dropping them, <laughs> which I've done once. I
1: don't recommend that. <laughs> well nobody's perfect right <laughs>
0: if you're if you're out in the dark wandering around mountains long enough uh you're gonna slip on some rocks and drop your camera or like i did i kicked my tripod over and that was
1: yeah it was yosemite too <laughs> i was not happy <laughs> no i bet but if you if you haven't had a chance to check out peter's work i definitely would uh definitely a, a talented photographer and some pretty cool shots i know i see when you post them from time to time, and it's some pretty amazing images. Um, the one thing I wanted to mention as well, what you're starting to see, I think, is the, the full-frame cameras are actually developing a bit of a new market as well. And I think that's video, like video casters and YouTubers are, are starting to use them because of the video detail where you used to need a dedicated video camera to shoot, um, especially in the Sony market. Uh, you're starting to see almost a specialization in video as well um especially being able to film 4k at 120p or uh even 8k at, at, at 30p with with some of the sony models available today so
0: the 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 difference in video between my nikon z50 which is you know i uh, i'll, I'll an air bracket's relatively inexpensive you know it's a thousand bucks for a body or eleven hundred bucks for a body and then a lens on top of that the quality you get off that is uh, outstanding uh versus my d800 which you know is a you know probably a four thousand dollar camera when i purchased it it doesn't hold a candle to it, just the capabilities of the sensors in regards to video is just off the charts. So again, you know, if you want to do video, if you have a need for uh, vlogging, all of those sorts of things, a lot of cameras these days have the capability. Um, and that's not saying that uh, I get great video off of my iPhone as well. So, I mean, the iPhone, I can't wait for the summer so I can get out with my iPhone and really put it through its paces and out in the mountains like I do with uh, with, with some other things. I took my iPhone 10 XS Max out last year and uh, the best picture I got at Marine Lake at sunrise was on my iPhone.
1: And yeah, I'm, took, a, I'm I, definitely I, an 11 Max user. So all of my pictures are in iPhone format. <laughs> um, yeah. But, uh, I, I've had I, really good success with
0: it. And, and I think one reason that it gets overlooked even though the uh, the camera phone you know the phone cameras have smaller sensors what they make up for it is the fact that you've got this incredible processing power Um, behind it and you know with the neural engines and all of the capabilities that you you can do HDR photos and x and y and z now and it's all it all happens kind of magically quite frankly so a lot of things that you do in post-processing with a raw file uh, the camera does for you to optimize it so the stuff that you get out of a a You know an iPhone, particularly, but I'm sure you know a Google Pixel or a Samsung will probably have a very similar result. is is phenomenal these days, and uh, you know even in contrasty light or or you know all of those sorts of things, it it, it's incredible what you know throwing a little bit of raw processing horsepower at at it does, and it's hard for camera companies to iterate that quickly because their core competency isn't necessarily microchips. Right. And developing, you know, AI for, for for your photos. So it takes them a long time to build a silicone that they might have to, you know, make payoff over a five-year period where for an iPhone, they're making a billion of these things. So it's pretty easy for them to do that. So
1: yeah, for sure. No, that's a very good point. And a lot of times, especially now with the the secret sauce they built into the software for adaptive, basically photography. They can stitch together through AI and through uh, machine learning and and different things like that. They can stitch together these pictures and and what the capability of these reduced capable sensors are and kind of fill in the blanks extremely accurately these days. Uh, You see that especially in cell phones like or uh, mobiles like uh, the Samsung 21 series as well, having the capability with low light to be able to Kind of create that through uh, learning and some of the I know I watched during the launch some of the different things they can do as far as adaptive shadow and and stuff like that it's incredible how much how much of that has been built into the software as opposed to the componentry in the hardware and and I think that's one reason that you know
0: Camera phones, you know, it's, it's, they've come a long way since my BlackBerry that could take a very grainy 720p picture, right? Uh, back in the, the late 90s, it, it's incredible the quality that you get, and uh, a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, just storage has increased as well. I mean, my uh, 36 megapixel uh, D800, a a single image is around 44 megabytes. So if you only had, you know what, 16 gigs on your old iPhone, how how quickly would you fill that thing up with your (laughs) 44 44 megabyte pictures? It wouldn't take long at all, right? So now that we have the advent of 128 gig, 256, 512 gig phones, you know, it feels like my camera roll is endless. So now I can store all my pictures on there. I don't have to worry about uploading to cloud. I just, I take as many as I want. And then I curate them later and delete and do all the rest
1: of that, right? So, Yeah, the only problem with me is I forget to curate them after and I got a whole bunch of crap in my pictures. now. (laughs) But uh, no, that's uh, probably a good place to move on to the next topic. Um, One thing I noticed is that I don't know about you, but I've been using LinkedIn now for a number of years. I think it's becoming more and more and more important, especially for professionals. Um, It's become almost a necessity as a platform and there's a few, kind of, or a couple of enhancements coming out for, uh, for LinkedIn users. And basically, these enhancements are uh, video profiles. So basically, being able to use a video cover story tool. Um, and what that's going to do is bring a certain level of production quality to individuals, uh, profiles, I don't know if I'm well suited for this tool, I've got a face for radio, but um, it it's a, definitely an opportunity to be more impactful on LinkedIn for your, your followers or for your uh, community and also the creator mode. And so if you're a user of the LinkedIn platform and you're publishing a lot of content, uh You're putting a lot of things out. For me, I do a lot of retweeting of my own company's kind of information, uh, letting people know there's events coming up. But you can use hashtags that kind of tie all of that information together and almost denote yourself as an expert in this area. So a couple of cool profiles that I think will help people leverage the platform a little little more in-depth.
0: Yeah. You know, I must say I'm not a advanced LinkedIn user at all. I use it to basically update my resume and, you know, have my personal profile and respond to messages and that's about it. So, but I do realize, you know, as a business oriented social media platform, it's important to pay attention, pay attention to what's going on in that, that realm. And, you know, since Microsoft bought it, it, it's got more relevance too. Right. So.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's going to become a bigger and bigger piece of their social media platform altogether. Uh, When you look at Teams integration with uh, all of the different technologies coming out uh, with the Microsoft platform, at some point, I think LinkedIn is going to get full integration with all of that and and be kind of a critical component, especially for corporate users. And um, I know Like now, LinkedIn's a significant source of marketing for companies, uh, especially on the IT vendor side. Uh, And I know it's not just technical stuff there too. If you're whatever industry you're in, you're starting to see advertisements for um, different types of events and stuff like that. LinkedIn is now a significant platform for a go-to-market strategy, really no matter what vertical you're in. So um, the more you can do there to set yourself apart especially from a like initial impact. So that video profiles, that first impression, and then as kind of a subject matter expert with the creator mode, especially if you're in the systems engineering role, a big part of, of your role is becoming a trusted advisor, being able to be a trusted source for, of information for really your, your subject matter. And that's a great way to enable you to do that without necessarily having face-to-face time with everybody, especially with remote requirements, what they are today. So pretty cool. Absolutely.
0: I'll have to have a look at that. Thanks for that. One thing that wasn't on our list that I'll note since we we touched on some Apple stuff earlier is uh, Apple announced today that they're holding their uh, worldwide developer conference uh, on June the 7th through the 11th. So, you know, for those of us who are kind of holding out to see what's next from an Apple hardware and maybe the M1X processor lineup, I imagine we're going to get some news there. So that'll be exciting from a, from
1: an Apple fanboy perspective. Absolutely. And I heard they're keeping it free as well.
0: Absolutely. It looks like it's going to follow the same format as last year. So they had over, I think, over 75 hours of content last year that was available for free, lots of developer sessions as well. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how, how they uh, improve on that because I think it was a pretty good pretty good last year uh and i think vendors are doing a uh, it's a difficult thing to replicate the feeling of an in-person conference i know uh, i miss the the vmworld uh feeling of going there meeting new people seeing them physically interacting with them and uh, i didn't get that same vibe this year but the content that came out of it was still top notch so you know all that content that you get delivered in those sessions uh is still as consumable as ever and is still as relevant as ever. And I, I think, you know, you, you do miss that, that personal touch point, which, you know, it, I think is the reason people go to in-person conferences anyways, is necessarily for the
1: content as much as for the networking and the, and the camaraderie. Well, and I wish I would have pulled the link because I did read an article that was yesterday or the day before um, about what does that look like going forward? Because these conferences that we've we've long attended, um, I I don't think I've been to a VM World, but I've been to a few, uh, especially in the storage space. With a like I, I used to be a NetApp admin, and uh, I do a significant amount of work with NetApp through through Veeam. So I've been to the the NetApp, uh, NetApp Insight and. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've been a couple of times there and to a couple of other conferences as well. And are they going to look the same going forward? Are people going to have the freedom to attend them uh, as they traditionally did? Are they going to be much smaller scale? There's predictions out there that we may never see the volume of a conference of a VM world again. Um, And it's highly possible because of the fact that these online platforms have done such a good job of of aggregating the content and making it consumable, not just for day one or day zero, but being able to have access to this content for three weeks. It doesn't mean that they cannot, uh, that they all have to be free platforms for for attendance. Uh, but having the capability to deliver them in a better hybrid model might mean that we never see the numbers that we originally.
0: I think you hit on something that I always say is, you know, I don't think they're going to be free because what, what I always ask customers, you know, what value is free? Well, if something doesn't cost anything, I've made no commitment to attend it. I don't have any skin in the game. Right. So I, I think there's going to be still some charge to things. Um, I, I still think there is a need for the in-person, you know, conference and expo type of a thing. Do I think it's going to be as big as it used to be? Uh, To be honest, I don't think it's going to be anywhere near as big as it used to be. And I think we won't get back to that, but what we'll see is we'll see content being delivered in, in different ways. Right. So, you know, you take a conference like VMworld where you had, you know, 425 sessions. Well, do you need to have all 425 of those sessions be capped to a single room? Well, you can still have them in that room, but now you open up that session and say, if you want to view it, here's the live stream link for it and you can watch it on your laptop. So now I don't have to line up, I don't have to do X or Y or Z. And now I can consume that same content directly in a different platform. So I think there's gonna be some of that where, if you want to, uh, I'm gonna call it a hybrid model, You know, where you can attend it in person and, basically get direct access to the people. And, you know, part of the reason that I went to VMworld as a customer and as a partner was so that I could talk to the product management and the product engineers, which I wouldn't have an opportunity to talk to otherwise. You still wouldn't have that opportunity with these, you know, remote virtual only conferences. You'll get the the capability of them delivering a presentation, but you won't get to go up to the, the person after the presentation and ask them specific relevant questions to you. And I think that's what a, a conference buys you rather than uh, you know, that you know, virtual, I'm gonna sit at my desk and take a week off work and just attend this conference and, and consume some new knowledge. I think there's still value in that, but I think there's incremental value in the in-person, um, being able to forge those personal relationships, which has quite frankly helped me in my career a lot. I don't think I'd be at a major vendor if I hadn't had those interactions.
1: So. No, and and I don't disagree with that. Um, I know in, in my past coming to these conferences, it was always the key uh, of making it a successful few days or week, depending on the conference was getting FaceTime with the engineers that you normally wouldn't have access to because of geographical disparity and, and kind of frequency in whatever territory you're in. So Um, I definitely see, I'm with you, even if they go to a hybrid model, I can still see there being a charge remotely as far as uh, cost outlay goes, because you do have to put skin in the game uh, to drive attendance, but at the same time, if you're executing a conference properly and providing your user base with um, significantly important information and quality sessions, then nobody really has a problem without laying uh, any money to, to attend them. Um, it just really drives the necessity to make sure that when you're delivering something like that, that it's calculated, that it's, it's got value in every single session you put forward. And it, I mean, I've been at conferences before that have cost a significant amount of money, but I did take yeah. a significant amount of information out of them. I learned a ton and it was easily worth the money I, I put out to, to attend it. So um, no problem with them not being free going forward. Um, I, I think, like you said, in order to drive attendance, they, they almost have to charge something because we all know that as soon as something's free, only about 30% of the attendees that sign up Actually, show up. It's yep. just too convenient to say, "Yeah, you know what? I, I, I'll I'll opt to do something else today." Um, but uh, definitely, from your point of view, I, I see the importance of having that in-person component as well.
0: Well, and the the other aspect of it that that I find is interesting, even in my own personal experience, is if I have something in my calendar that says training, you know, or conference, or whatever and my boss says there's this emergency con call that you need to be on can you skip out on a session and the answer is i was yes i can where if i'm away at a conference in san francisco or or vegas or barcelona or wherever he knows i'm i'm off the grid it's almost like you're out of office versus you're you're now trying to balance your regular job with this learning event and and i think that's what the in-person gives a lot of capability for customers, partners, and other vendors to experience it without the distractions of, oh, I've got a fire burning, or I've got a customer call, or I've got, you know, something that I have to do. And, you know, have I taken customer calls while I've been on these conferences? Absolutely. But, you know, everybody on the team knows you're away. <laughs> and I think that's a, a differentiator, you know, versus, oh, I'm signed up for the online event. You know uh, you know i have an online event on thursday that or tomorrow actually that i'm on and i know if i get a phone call while that's on i'm going to take the phone call because i registered for it it was free but it, you know it's it's going to take lower priority where if that was an in-person event where i'd committed to going and i'm going to go and i'm going to sit above the seat that phone call wouldn't get answered it would be hey i'm 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 busy I'm face to face in this session or, or whatever it might be. And I think that makes a difference for a lot of people.
1: Yeah. And from, a from a systems engineering standpoint, it's also nice to be able to submit, uh, content for these types of conferences as well. Um, I like delivering them in person as opposed to uh, remotely, but, uh, good either way, but it just, it's a great opportunity to uh, create a platform for yourself from the systems engineer standpoint as well.
0: Yep. All right, let's, uh, I think we've beaten that one to death. Let's move on here.
1: <laughs> Most definitely. So. From uh, Michael's newsletter uh, this week, was there anything in particular that you uh, pulled out of there that you found uh, high value? There was a ton of content this week.
0: It, it, was, a, it was actually a really good newsletter. I, I could probably pull about 20 things. Uh, the first one I'll, I'll start with since we talked about the iPhone a little bit is um, there was um, an article that he referenced around uh, iMessages and deleting conversations. And Apparently, if you delete conversations from iMessage, it actually asks you, "Is this spam?" And apparently, if you get too many flags for basically having someone delete your conversation and say spam, you can actually deactivate that person's iMessage account. So I think, hey, great idea that you can have this methodology for it, but also a bad idea because I think there's lots of instances where that can be abused. You know, think of ex-boyfriend or or you know, be, you know, a, a jilted friend or something like that but then can you know go and nefariously send send a whole bunch of text messages and have an interaction with you and then
1: delete them all and declare them spam and all of a sudden you can't use your iMessage account anymore so yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of a bunch of 12 year olds that my son uh, hangs out with them thinking it's hilarious that they're getting people kicked off of iMessage so uh, and, 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 <laughs>
0: until you until you realize it's a permanent ban and and it's hard for Apple to unlock you, right? And there's, yeah. it, it's probably going to be a one-time
1: process, right? So, yeah, absolutely, uh, definitely risky. Uh, de- like the idea, gotta see what the implementation is like long term.
0: <laughs> well, one of the other things that uh, was a little close to my heart. Um, was a article wrapped around um, vSAN data protection platform uh, and MinIO, which is basically an object store supervisor service that brings uh, S3 object capability to vSAN. And what uh, the data persistence platform is, is is essentially MinIO, if you installed it, it takes care of all the data resiliency in the inside the application. If you put that application on vSAN, just basically without any, within any, Knowledge of 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 MinIO and VSAN, essentially you'd be doubling up your storage because MinIO is going to do data protection, and uh, you know making a couple of copies of that object, and then VSAN is going to do the same thing. So you now took your your hundred gig object and made it four hundred gig very quickly, which isn't necessarily something that you want to do uh, without cautious forethought. So with the data persistent platform, we've created an API for these. Uh, the, These applications like MinIO, uh, Elasticsearch, uh, Dell ECS, um, Cassandra, Kafka, all these things that deal with uh, in application data resiliency, we've given them the capability to talk to vSAN over an API. And basically, vSAN is aware of what the data placement is and communicates that back to the application. So the application still controls the data resilience, and vSAN will take care of the placement inside of the. The, uh, the vSAN underlying uh, object. The other capability we have is something called vSAN Direct, which wasn't mentioned in that video, but it basically allows us to carve off a certain number of disks and present them directly to that application as well. So there, there, there may be circumstances where you want one or the other. So I thought that was interesting. And, and Cormac Hogan uh, does a great job talking about what that capability is going to bring. And obviously it extends out the value, uh, especially in you know uh, what I would call modern application or Kubernetes environments where you wanna have data persistence and maybe they rely on S3 buckets as that capability. Well, where do you get S3 buckets? Well, ding, 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 Amazon. But if you wanna have that on-prem, MinIO is, is a great place to uh, bring that capability back on-prem as well.
1: No, and what I've noticed is MinIO is getting a lot of love in the last, I'd say year, year and a half, as a, a trusted object storage provider. Um, obviously it takes some time getting to that point, but uh, I know Veeam ready repositories, you can use that as a, as like an S3, basically compatible object storage container for uh, Veeam backups as well. So cool to be able to integrate that at the VSAN level and the the data persistence platform and and have that kind of tightly bound bound integration there. Obviously, MinIO is gaining a lot of steam in the container Kubernetes type environment. So uh, obviously going to be a very important platform going forward and having that integration definitely opens the door to further um, that containerization within the VMware environment. So. Definitely.
0: And and absolutely, it's got a big tie-in with our Tanzu platform as well. So, which brings me to the the last thing I'll touch on in in um, in Michael's uh, newsletter from this week was the vSphere with Tanzu Quick Bite video series. And uh, if you are interested at all in vSphere with Tanzu, uh, this is a great place to learn what is involved in standing up vSphere uh, with with Tanzu uh, and how to integrate HAProxy, how to look at namespace creation, all those sorts of things. And it's a series of one to two minute videos. And I think there's about 10 of them in the series. And it basically walks you through kind of from instantiation all the way through to operationalizing it inside of a vSphere environment. So I thought that was really good. And, you know, I'll put a plug in. uh, I developed the hands-on lab this year for vSphere with Tanzu, which is uh, hol dash. 2113-SDC and is available at labs.hol.vmware.com 24 by seven. So if you want to learn about it and then go play with it, by all means, please do so. The hands-on labs are available 24 by seven.
1: Excellent. Um, The one thing I I wanted to step back a little bit and mention with MinIO as well is it's also certified as a Veeam immutable repository. So if you do need an object storage repository that is immutable on-prem, um, or within a container environment to store backup data, you can definitely use that as well. So. And
0: uh, immutable uh, is a key thing in a lot of um, uh, legal hold and, uh, and also in a lot of application development where you wanna freeze um, you know, my, my RC release, right? So there's lots of different ways you can use an immutable platform typically I've seen it in the past in, in object stores be used as a, uh, you know, as a,
1: as a legal hold place. Right. So. For sure. Absolutely. So lots of good functionality there. Uh, good integration with the data persistence platform and Veeam. So we get to both pl- do a little plug there, but um, so for, for my articles, mine are going to be a little bit self-serving uh, today and, um, obviously, I mentioned before, having some experience with NetApp conferences, some good integration in version 11 with the NetApp-specific platform. What we're st- seeing there VMatting CDB provides us another replication op- uh, option, so we do uh, SnapMe or SnapVault integration as well. But having a CDP for a couple of other workloads allows for more flexibility in how you can get certain data to certain locations, especially if latency is in line. And, and that's something you want to kind of customize your replication based on requirement of a workload or application. Um, Enhance NAS backups. And so uh, we see Further integration with the NetApp platform, and this uh, article, I should say, is written by Melissa Palmer, one of our uh, product management experts, and, and probably seen her give a presentation uh, here or there. She's um, always doing LinkedIn presentations and stuff like that. So a very uh, intelligent person with Veeam, and and highly knowledgeable on the on the NetApp integration side. So. What we have seen is the backup from storage snapshots on NetApp platforms has also seen uh, snapshot integration. So native snapshot integration there. And what we're seeing is that's increasing the, the speed with which we can pull that data. We've also got the capability to do instant NAS share recovery which allows us to publish back shares very, very quickly and then migrate the data back into production. Uh, so a few different use cases there that help out with uh, the uh, NetApp SIFS environment and, and some NFS stuff there as well. And then storage integration for agents. This is new uh, completely. And what this means is if you've got a virtual machine or a physical server and you've attached disk to that by iSCSI or something along those lines or fiber channel, we can actually do storage direct backups for those SAN integrated volumes. And so you no longer have to pull that all through the agent, we can pull the the local disk components through the agent in the traditional method, but then go straight to storage for the other piece. So highly optimized uh, data protection for the entire NetApp platform at this point. And then the other article I'm gonna call out is the ver- version 11 Linux love within the Veeam platform. So Michael um, kind of addressed this and uh, just figuring out. So Edwin uh, with Veeam wrote a great blog post on on what Linux love has been brought to the market in in version 11. So we did introduce, Veeam introduced Linux proxies in version 10, but those were really kind of uh, mapped down to basically hot ad mode. So only one backup mode and it's pretty efficient, but it leaves on the table a couple of other different technologies that we couldn't quite leverage, but now we've added, Our typical NBD, so our network-based data protection uh, mode as well, as well as direct SAN. So when if a SAN is attached by iSCSI or fiber channel to the virtual environment, to the to the VMware environment, we're gonna do direct SAN-based backup. And so again, highly optimized, but now not requiring a Windows proxy. If you're doing direct NFS off NetApp, still will require a Windows proxy, but uh, for the For the uh, Fibre Channel and iSCSI, extremely high performance backups from DirectSAN using that storage fabric as opposed to the network to pull that data. So a lot of efficiency there, but with the security of of Linux. Um, File level restores, not requiring a helper appliance anymore. So you can actually leverage another Linux server in your environment to mount the data to to restore, Uh, which means if you're doing an agent-based backup for some reason you don't have a virtual environment to restore from, you can actually just use a Linux, uh, another Linux box on the network to be able to interpret that data and to pull it out of the backup. Um, another piece to highlight is a persistent data mover for repositories in Linux. So instead of rolling out the data mover dynamically every time we do a backup, we can now persist that data mover. So we don't need as much communication back and forth between the the Linux repository and the v management server. And so that increases security and reduces the network uh, chatter between those two uh, pieces and and really leads into our hardened repository. So it allows us to kind of further that Linux hardened repository functionality that we've talked about at length. So a bunch of great Linux and NetApp love for for version 11 highlighted this week. Yeah, and uh, I think really what, it all boils down
0: to is, you know, backups can be hard and complex and anything you can do to make them easier and easier to get your data back quicker. You know, those are all great things from, a, you know, I always go back to an RPO and RTO, you know, those are accelerating your RTO and that really helps businesses get back when they've had a need for recovery. You know, whether it's, you know, accident, accident deletion ransomware or a fire in the data center, like our good friends at OVH, right? Losing 30,000 servers definitely puts a spotlight on BCDR for a lot of customers, so.
1: No, absolutely. I'd agree with that. And and then at the end of the day, RPOs, RTOs, and security. Um, that's obviously job number one these days is, is making sure everything is, is not only available, but completely secure. Um, it can be available, but if it's not secure, that's only part of the story.
0: Absolutely. Well, with that, we're, we're kind of coming up on our time. Anything else that you want to add before
1: we wrap it up? No, uh, just want to again, send my best to Michael and, uh, and the family and, uh, hope everything's going well. Hope to chat with you soon and the lab setup goes well. And thank you again, Peter, for, uh, setting this up and having me.
0: Our pleasure. Uh, Thanks for joining us to all our listeners and uh, to Michael. Uh, Hopefully you're moving well. Your unpacking has gone uh, smoothly and we look forward to chatting with you in the future. With that, we'll sign off episode 10. Thanks very much for joining us. And we look forward to another episode next week.